Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Late last year, Mehran Karimi Nasseri died at what is believed to be the age of 77. You may not recognize his name immediately, but you've probably heard of his story. Mehran Karimi Nasiri's story was stranger than fiction. An Iranian exile, he lived in Paris's Charles de Gaulle airport for 18 years. Sir Alfred, as he later became known, was stuck in a sort of diplomatic no-man's land at the French airport. He was arguably the most famous homeless person in the world. There's a man walking around the terminal in a bathrobe. I think it's CIA. You don't know what the hell you're talking about. That guy doesn't even speak English. His peculiar life and living circumstances were the inspiration for the 2004 movie The Terminal, starring Tom Hanks. Are we headed for home? Uh, no, I am delayed a long time. But despite the global interest in his life, much of his story remains unclear. Will we ever really know what kept him there that long? And why, in his final days, he decided to return to the terminal? I think what people like about Sir Alfred and what draws people to him and to his story is is that it's a little bit of a mystery, an enigma and and a riddle. This is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, the strange story of the man who spent 18 years in an airport. This episode, Connor Pope is joined by author and journalist Andrew Donkin, who wrote The Terminal Man, the book on Sir Alfred's life. Andrew, people have been fascinated with the life of Sir Alfred for years now. But what do we know about his life before he ended up in the airport in 1988? Because like a lot of his life before then remains unclear. Is that right? Um, yes, it does. Uh, Sir Alfred's a fascinating figure. And there are lots of elements of his life which are a mystery and lots of different versions of his story which contradict each other. Mm. Um, What we do know is that he was born in Iran. We do know that he travelled a lot. He came to um, England, uh, where I'm speaking to you from, to to do a a degree. After that, in the early 80s, he travelled around Europe on lots and lots of trains. Um, So he's been visited most European countries and he's had a very, before he got stranded at the airport, he lived a very wide and kind of varied life travelling around Europe. Okay, so let's talk about the airport because he arrived in Charles de Gaulle in Paris on the 8th of August 1988. What was his initial plan? I mean, where was he going? Um, He was trying to get to the UK. 
So all the way through his adventures and his 18 years in the airport, he was trying to get to the UK where he wanted uh, citizenship and he wanted to be be allowed in. Some of that might be because there are another kind of element of the of the kind of legend was that um, he'd always felt that he was different than his kind of uh, rest of his family in a kind of cuckoo in the nest way. And there was a kind of uh, rumour uh, that his mother that he was the offspring of his dad and a British nurse uh, was his mum. And then she had returned to Britain. And so that was one reason among several that he wanted to come to Britain. I don't know if it was particularly to absolutely find her, but he thought that he had mm. British roots and that he should be allowed into Britain. He had absolutely no documentary evidence of this. And so that didn't cut anything with the Border Patrol. Um, I think how he got strands in the airport was that he was trying to change planes. I think he'd landed from somewhere and, and there were new rules in place where you had to have a passport to get on the plane rather than just one where you'd landed, which is what he, mm. he kept doing. And he wasn't allowed on the plane. And then he was trapped in the airport because the airport is a kind of uh, legal diplomatic no man's land in as much as if he went into France he could be arrested for not having French papers. And he had done a couple of times, a couple of jail periods. And I think it was, it goes like three months, six months, and the next one would be two years. If you keep repeat offending, the next time you get sent to jail, it's for longer in those days. I'm talking about the mid 80s, late 80s. Mm. Um, so he couldn't leave the airport and go into France because he really didn't want to get arrested. And he couldn't get on a plane and leave the airport. So the airport was kind of acting like for somebody that had run into an embassy somewhere in a foreign country. It was a safe space where he could be, but couldn't leave. In my experience, life here in the Chaldugol airport is not bad. I, I try to have a nice day and every day. It does seem kind of outlandish that somebody could arrive in Paris without the proper documentation, not be able to board a plane to the UK, not be able to leave the airport and just set up camp there for 18 years. How did that come about? Well, you have to remember as well that most of the 18 years was pre 9-11, pre-2001. And so it would be absolutely fair to say that airport security is not what it was today. If you or I tried to do that today, we would be moved on within you know, probably six or eight hours. Mm. We might get one night there if we were lucky. In, in those days, things were a little bit more um, uh, more lenient, I guess, security-wise. Um, so he was there, and I guess people at the beginning kept thinking that he would move on shortly, and I guess most people would have gone out into France and taken a chance on being arrested because obviously by no means everybody without proper ID papers is arrested. Mm. So he probably could have got out and, and sneaked around and got away with that. But he but he didn't want to. He had this drive in his head that he wanted to get to the UK. And in a way, being in an airport where there are planes leaving for the UK every day, I guess felt much closer to him to being near his final destination. And tell me about those days that you spent with Sir Alfred. I mean, what was his setup like? Where was he sleeping? And how did he spend his days? Because we all know that one of the worst places to be is an airport, because it just seems like the time grinds to a halt. So how did his days pass? So he'd, he'd established a routine um, for himself, which was a really smart thing to do, because as you, as you say, airports can be dreadful places. Early in the morning, before the airport got busy, 
about five o'clock, he would go into the men's washroom where there were some showers and he would shave and he would prepare himself for the day. Then he would come out, he would get, come back to his bench, put his shaving stuff away and he would pop to McDonald's and get a McDonald's breakfast egg McMuffin or something like that. Mm. Then he would go back to his desk, uh, to his desk, he'd go back to his bench and eat that as the airport sprang into life around him. He was based on a red bench near the Bye Bye Bar, as it was then, that doesn't exist now. And he had gradually accumulated, so by the time I was there in 2004, he'd been there 16 years, and he had accumulated boxes and boxes of stuff, primarily a huge journal. The airport doctor, Dr. Bagan, who, who looked after him and was, was, uh, was a really nice guy and was really kind to him, gave him a box of um, computer paper years before, thinking that he could while away the day. And Sir Alfred started a handwritten journal where he would write longhand, so like 300 words a page, and he would use both sides of the, the thing. Everything that he did, everything that he ate, every journalist that came to see him, the weather, what the airport was doing, who had been to see him that day. So he was recording kind of everything in sort of minute details. Often there were pages of it. He let me read it when we got to trust each other. And there were often pages of his thoughts about President Clinton's presidency or Princess Diana, or it was all the historical events. I remember reading in his journal about the fall of the Berlin Wall that happened while he was there. And by the time I was there in 2004, I calculated that he had about 20,000 pages of journal, which were stored in, you know, the printer boxes, you, get, you know, a ream of yeah. printer paper. Goes. So he had maybe 20 of those that he'd kind of filled up with stuff he had a collection of newspapers he was very into current affairs so he had stacks of newspapers that were um his favorite days where something big news had happened and he was gradually accumulating he looked like he was kind of building a nest because he had this kind of semicircle of this stuff arranged about it i mean partly as a protective wall and then you could really only kind of approach from from one way how else did he survive i mean how did he afford to eat those bacon and egg McMuffins from McDonald's or whatever it might have been? Were people passing through the airport helping him to, to get by? Yeah, he had a lot of he had a lot of people that would help him. Most of the meals came from free vouchers because all the airport staff uh, in those days, all the pilots and all the air um, hostesses and everything, all got meal vouchers to spend in the airport. And after you've been doing that for a few years, uh, you very quickly find that most of them get bored with the small selection of airport food they bring a packed lunch from home and so there's loads of spare vouchers and they would give them to um sir alfred so i never paid for a meal in the airport when i would go off to get it sir alfred would say oh i've got i take these vouchers and he would open a box mm. and he had uh, like a sweet kind of a sweet box and in it would be you know you'd see 100 meal vouchers and stuff the airport doctor looked after him if he ever ran short of those and he had a lot of well wishes. People would write to him from all over the world, care of just Charles. The, sometimes you'd get letters saying, the man on the bench, care of Charles de Gaulle Airport, and all those letters would come. People would send him things. But primarily, the day-to-day -day meals were provided by the free vouchers from flight crews that got to know him over the years. And they would sometimes um, help him out in other ways. So he particularly liked, I remember, the storage boxes, of the German airline, the German state airline, he thought were particularly strong. They were really strong and good for keeping his journal in. And he would sometimes say, oh, have you got any of those? And then and then the German crews would drop him off a couple on the sly. So he had his own little kind of world building, world building system there. Um, and everybody liked him. He was very charming. He was never pushy. He was always uh, 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 grateful. 
he was very he was a well-educated guy and i'm just giving an example while he was in the airport um he arrived speaking english and he arrived speaking farsi and he spoke a bit of french while he was at his bench he got um an english to german dictionary and an english to french dictionary and taught himself to read french and german so he could read their daily newspapers by going through the dictionary teaching himself german and french a certain number of pages of the dictionary a day and by the time I was there in 2004, he was fluent in French and German and could read, you know, the equivalent of the Financial Times published in German. And he could translate for me if I said, oh, what's that say? He would be able to translate. So although he was in the airport for a long time, he did actually kind of use a lot of that time to better himself. Now, you were in the airport or you spent weeks with him. But did you ever spend a night in the airport experiencing what he experiences Yes, for a couple of nights, um, two or three nights, I spent on the bench next to next to his to experience the airport overnight. It's a tough, it's a tough call. I mean, it's tough being there in the daytime. At night, uh, I hadn't realised this until I spent over the the lights hardly ever go out, so you're mm. there and all of the lights are on overnight. When it gets quiet at midnight and planes stop landing and taking off, you get the cleaning staff come in. So then there will be people with vacuums and sweeping it and, and, and everything. So you get disturbed by that. The announcements only ever really stop being over the loudspeakers between about one and four. So he was living in an environment where not only were there the uh, pollution from being in the middle of an airport, a space that you or I pass through, and we might be unlucky and get to lay there for four hours. But he was there in that pollution for nearly 20 years, for 18 years in total. But also um, being quite sleep deprived, partly because he could never completely relax because he was in a public space and he didn't want somebody to steal any of his stuff, although that didn't ever really happen. But the bright lights and the noise meant you only ever had three hours of peace. So apart from the uncomfortableness of the bench, the worry about rolling off and the, and the chill that because the airport terminal is a big space in winter, it never it never got warm. When I knew him, he was in his late 50s and he nearly always had a cough, nearly always had a bad cough. So it was actually quite harsh. And having spent two nights with him on the bench next door, I remember making an excuse uh, saying I had an urgent phone call about the book that I had to go to one afternoon and just going back to my hotel room and having a nap because it was it was really genuinely quite quite wearing and he managed to do that for as I say nearly two decades. Now there was one occasion and I think during one of your interviews when the airport was evacuated over an unattended bag. What did Sir Alfred do with that circumstance? Oh, so he was he was very British about it, uh, which. Possibly is the thing that should have he should have put on his application forms to the embassies because uh, the most stiff thing he ever did was just he just carried on. So I re- I remember I was interviewing him. It was one morning, in the middle of the morning, and seeing a load of people walking very quickly as if they were missing a, about to miss their plane, and then realised that a lot of them were shopkeepers and other people who had just I saw someone looking up their shop in the middle of the morning that never happened and just the news that and just all walking away and I said so what's going on and there'd been announcements and my French shamefully wasn't good enough to to pick out the imminent danger to myself um and so I said oh they, they said there is a bomb I said a, a, a bomb he said yeah, yeah and he pointed behind me and I looked behind me and there was a, a suitcase by itself maybe 150 feet away uh 50 meters away and at the end of that corridor, I saw some French uh, kind of security police with blast barriers, which were you could see through, 
poking, just poking their heads around the corner. And one of them gave me a little wave and I waved back. And I said to Sir Alfred, shouldn't, shouldn't we go? You know, he said, oh, no, this happens all the time. It won't be a bomb. Some tourist has forgotten their, their baggage. This was 2004. So it was then three years after 9-11 and, mm. and increased security. Uh, and I said to Sir Alfred, well, you know, Alfred, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be worth perhaps erring on the side of caution? You know, you know, that we might go. And he was just like, no, no, no. He wasn't going to go, partly because he didn't want to leave his stuff, partly because he didn't want to leave the terminal, but more because defiantly, in his mind, this happened once a week. And if he went every time there was an alert, you know, it, 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 wouldn't, it wouldn't be any good. And he said, no, no, don't worry. And I had a quick decision to make as to whether or not in that moment, in my journalist self, whether or not you know I was going to stay or whether or not I was going to go. And I'd only been there a few days. I didn't really want to break the uh, bond of trust. I knew that the book uh, was quite important. I did the quick wonder in my head as to, is there enough stuff? If I get blown up now, is there enough stuff in my hotel room so that another author could come in and finish the book? And I thought, yeah, there, 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 there probably is. Um, and then there was a little robot that came around with a kind of mini chainsaw and it chainsawed open the soft bit of the case and then a load of pyjamas and knickers and, you know, a novel fell out uh, and all the police guys just went like, oh, okay, right, that's completely fine. And Sir Alfred said, you see, it's, it's always that, it's always pyjamas. And then everybody rushed back to their shops and opened up again. And, and that was it. Okay. And I realised that that happened at least. I said, how often has happened? He said, one, two times a week. Wow. You know, he just sits there throughout it, being extremely calm. And I guess you would. I guess maybe after the first 30 times you see it, and as I say, he had been there at that point 16 years, you think, okay, this is statistically very unlikely to be a dangerous suitcase. You know, I'm here all the time. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Now, as you say, he'd been there 16 years when you met him and your book came out in 2004, which is the same year that Steven Spielberg's film came out. How did Sir Alfred react to the film and to the book, because he had suddenly become a celebrity. Um, so, Sir, as far as I know, Sir Alfred never saw the film. He didn't. He didn't see the film in um, in two thousand and four, and he hadn't seen it when when our book came out. Um, he liked the book very much. I remember going in and, and going up slightly nervously to give him a final copy, a finished copy of the book for the first time, only to find when I got there that the enterprising news agent, who had been very helpful uh, during the writing of the book, etc., had got a load in and Sir Alfred was sitting there signing them for tourists. 
So you could go in, if you were passing through the airport, you could pop to this newsagent, buy a copy of, of, of our book, and then Sir Africa would, would, would sign it for you. And he said to me, oh, it's a triumph. That's lovely. As far as I know, he never saw the film, which is kind of probably good because the film is not a terrible film, but the film is a, a, a very fantasized romance between Tom Hanks, who is from Eastern Europe in the film, an Eastern European country, rather than Iran, and Catherine Zeta-Jones, who falls, who's then very young and very glamorous and very beautiful, as of course she still is, we should say, for legal reasons. Um, and she uh, falls in love with him for a guy sitting on a bench. And even though he is Tom Hanks, it's a very unlikely story you feel watching it. And kind of Sir Alfred didn't, didn't ever see that. I gotta say, I, I am so sorry about what happened last time, you know, asking you out like that. I'm so used to guys trying to grab my ass at 30,000 feet that when I finally meet somebody who keeps his hands in his pockets, oh. I don't know how to react. So oh, 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 let's oh. just start over, huh? Oh, yes, okay. Are you coming or going? I don't know. Both. <laughs> Tell me about it. And of course, you've referred to him repeatedly as Sir Alfred. Why is that? Where did he get that nickname? Oh, he got that nickname. It's a really nice story. Is is um after he'd been at the airport for a year or so, he began to write to governments and embassies asking for uh, citizenship. And he wrote to the British embassy in Brussels, um, asking if he could come to England, asking for the papers. And they wrote back to him, care of the uh, care of the airport. Um, and the person writing the letter, which was done an old style typewriter in those days, either meant to say, um, dear sir, or dear Alfred, which was their two options. But what they typed was dear Sir Alfred. So he had his letter arrive at the airport that was passed on to him from the airport doctor. And he opened it up and the, and the envelope was from the British embassy in Brussels with their seal on. And he took it out and it was letter headed from the British embassy in Brussels. And he said, dear Sir Alfred, and so he thought, like, this is fantastic. They haven't given me access to uh, England and citizenship, but, you know, I've I've been awarded a knighthood by the English and British Embassy in Brussels. Now, to be clear, he always knew that that wasn't the case and that was a little bit of a, of a joke. I found him to always be uh, very, very gentlemanly and intelligent and very dignified. And so the kind of mocker of, of Sir Alfred sort of suited him. Now, in his later years at the airport, he was offered both French and Belgian citizenship, but he didn't take them. So when did he finally leave and where did he go? Uh, he didn't take them because he was really stringent that he wanted to come to the UK. So he, And he didn't want to take French citizenship because he um, held that they had treated him badly when they had put him in prison for not having the right papers. So he didn't want to become a French citizen. So I knew him in 2004, film came out in 2004. In 2006, in the autumn, he got a very bad chest infection that was, and he needed to be hospitalised. And he was taken from the airport to a hospital in an ambulance. So that's the kind of physical thing that got him out. And then when he was discharged from the hospital a few months later, he was kind of told that he shouldn't go back to the, the airport, but that even though he hadn't formally accepted the French citizenship, that he would be left alone, nobody would... You know, there was no danger of jail or anything, and he could, he could, he could go somewhere. And and then, um, as I understand it, he went to a homeless shelter in District Twenty and lived there. And then after a while, they said to him, "Safri, you can't, you can't really be here because we're a homeless shelter, and you've got two hundred and fifty thousand euros in the bank from Steven Spielberg. You know, sort of like we're we're kind of like a charity. You could kind of." Uh, and he spent um, the next decade moving from hotel to hotel and place to place 
using some of that money, but never really staying in, never really staying in one place. He had certainly become a bit institutionalized by being in the airport. I imagine when he was suddenly thrust out into the world, it was like if somebody left military service 30 years in the army or 25 years in prison, and then they come out and there's all of those decisions that you and I have to make, you know, paying our gas bill and having a girlfriend or doing this or renting a flat or going shopping or where to eat lunch. All of those decisions that normal mainstream people would make on a day-to-day basis were alien to somebody that's been in prison or the army or indeed been in an airport for, for 18 years. So, you know, I imagine it was a period of some, some adjustment for him. An Iranian man who lived in a Paris airport for 18 years has died. Mehran Karimi Nasseri had been living at the airport again in recent weeks. He died after a heart attack around midday on Friday. It's unclear what prompted him to return to the terminal he had made home for almost two decades. When he died, he had returned to the airport, which is in and of itself quite remarkable. Do we have any sense as to why he went back to that place? He passed away at lunchtime on November the 12th. And I heard the news that he had passed away. And then a couple it was a couple of hours later that reading more reports that, that said that he had been back to the airport. And I have to say, for me, knowing that he went back there for what turned out to be the last two weeks of his life um, really uh, cheered me because I'm sure that's where he wanted uh, wanted to go. And I, I've spoken to a few people at the airport that spoke to him. They said that he was um, very, very quiet, that he didn't have much energy, that he looked very old, that he was quite ill. And so I think that like a cat on some kind of instinctive level, not consciously, and maybe he didn't know that the end was only going to be two weeks, mm. but I suspect that he had gone back there. And I, I said to people uh, in the airport security I spoke to, they said, what, why was he allowed to to, to stay for two weeks it's good that he was but like what and they said well we kind of thought people sort of thought this is not going to be another 18 year stretch you know we're going to just yeah. kind of let 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 you know let him have his dignity um and and so he was able to get back there and, and i'm sure having having known him for those that those time and that year and spoken to him uh, at length and and knowing him relatively well emotionally that that was like going home for him that's that's where he would have thought of as 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 home so i'm glad that he got back there i'm glad he got to take a few belongings there and if he could have passed away anywhere of his choice then i think that that would be where he would have um, you know wanted wanted to go and he was able to finally leave the airport on his final journey um you know and and, and take mm. off there so that was a little bit of the kind of poetic justice Now, you mentioned earlier that uh, Sir Alfred had kept a huge volume of notes on Bill Clinton's presidency and the fall of the Berlin Wall and all sorts of other things. Do we have any sense as to what might have happened to those notes after he passed away? Um, I think they're with the with the police at the moment. My understanding is that all of his stuff um, got taken away. Uh, it's been looked after by the police. Um, I think it would be standard procedure that they'll keep it for a few months to see if any members of the family come forward to claim it. I don't know if he had a will. I don't know if anybody from Iran is going to come and, and claim that or the body. Um, and if not, then Dr. Bagan, which is his old airport friend, um, is going to organise uh, a funeral somewhere relatively near to the to the airport. 
You mentioned there was a $250,000 payment for the movie rights. So I would imagine that he probably died with some assets. Again, that probably needs to be sorted out in the, in the days, weeks and months ahead, does it? Yeah, for sure. I would, I would think, I would think so. I would imagine because he hardly spent um, any of the any of that money when when I knew him that there would be some of that slushing around. Yeah, but I mean, really, the the financial stuff is the kind of least interesting. I, I was saying to a couple of people that I was speaking to about the airport situation that you know that that journal, um, which is absolutely huge, but is a real historical document, both in the terms of describing history, but also in the terms of um, you know, 40,000 pages written by somebody sitting on airport budget for 20 years needs to end up in a museum or, you mm. know, it needs to be curated, you know. So I, I hope that I hope that happens too. Absolutely. Now, I suppose one of the, 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 the goals of a biographer is to get to the heart of their subject and to really get a sense that they understand the subject and they have fully revealed or, or, or taken back the curtain on their story. Do you get a sense that you achieved that in the book that you wrote? Um, when I was commissioned to write his uh, autobiography, The Terminal Man, with him, um, normally in an autobiography, you would want to interview the subject and then you would want to get to the absolute truth. And the selling point of most autobiographies is to say, we really spoke to, you know, we spoke to Mick Jagger or we spoke to uh, whoever it was and, and got the absolute truth about all these kind of rumours. And I really quickly realised when I started working with uh, with Sir Alfred that within, within his version of his story, there were lots of bits that contradicted, different stories that didn't quite make sense or things that kind of shifted through in time. And I, I kind of came to the conclusion quite quickly that even with his own head, um, his story was a little bit more like a kind of myth or a legend of, of like, say, King Arthur or someone, mm. where you get different stories and they do form one mythology, but there are sometimes contradicting, contradicting bits. I achieved what exactly what I wanted to set out to do, which is it's an autobiography of Sir Alfred's mystery and all of the legends around him, because that's much more true to his story and true to what people think about him than trying to actually boil anything down to just kind of facts and dates and figures. Um, and so in that book, there are all the different versions of, of, of the story. They're all told as true. And we invite the reader to decide which bits they believe, which bits are true. Some bits are obviously kind of more fantastic and fantasy. Some bits contradict and you need to make up your own mind. It's an autobiography of his legend mm. rather than an autobiography of him. And I think for me, that was absolutely the right way to approach that kind of very Fortean situation of a man who's been living in an airport for two decades. Well, Andrew, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for giving us your time. That's it for today. This episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan. In the News will be back on Wednesday. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.